Hello and welcome to Prepublished. I'm Sophia. In this episode, we talk about libraries, writing for boys and prizes. Anthony McGowan is a children's author and until this week the holder, although as we'll hear that's not exactly true, of the Carnegie Medal, the most prestigious prize for writing for young people in the UK. Anthony's the author of various children's books which we talk about, but the one that won the Carnegie Prize was Lark, which he wrote for one of my favourite publishers, Barrington Stoke. I was curious to hear about the Carnegie Medal process and I think Anthony explains very well why the shortlist is exciting for readers as well as for writers. The Carnegie tends to favour a certain kind of book, but he reminded me about the range of other prizes out there too, and the absolute importance of libraries in promoting books. It just takes one book to resonate with someone and turn them into a reader. Anthony talks about the book that did it for him when he was nine, and how he read it over and over, and it taught him what a novel was. You want to know what it is now, don't you? We recorded this episode in April 2021, before the latest winner of the Slip Carnegie Medal was announced. He is the US poet and author Jason Reynolds for his book Look Both Ways, published by Knights of, a small brave young publishing company whose success I'm happy to celebrate today. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anthony. Tony, welcome to Prepublished. It's nice to be here. Um, can you tell me just a little bit about where you are today? Because, of course, in these times, we're not sitting opposite each other at my dining table like I'd like us to be. Yeah, I'm in um, what used to be my, my daughter's bedroom, the smallest bedroom in our in our flat, uh, kind of buried away at the back of the flat. Um, so it's kind of it's a bit of a hybrid state at the moment. It's partly my office and partly still got her some of her bedroom stuff in it. So uh, quite embarrassingly for um, for Zoom calls, the wall behind me is covered in um like vogue and other fashion kind of shoots <laughs> torn out and pl- pasted on the wall oh, so it actually looks like my own heart <laughs> it looks like you're sinister when i'm in here with all these kind of you know <laughs> women in various states of undress behind me but that's that's my world now that's the world of zoom excellent yes i like the world of zoom it's um it's, it's <laughs> an interesting peek into other people's lives that way. Uh, yeah or dangerous one <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast and I really want to talk to you about, I was going to say writing for boys and that's kind of Mm. one of the first things I want to ask you, certainly writing about boys, Mm -hmm. um, speaking as an author who has written a lot about girls. Um, I'm very interested in the kind of books that you've done. Um, so my first question for you really was, as a as a young adult and children's author, did you set out to write for boys? Um, how do you think mm. of yourself that way? Oh, it's, it's a quite complicated story that the the origin <laughs> myth of, of McGowan, the writer. That I the very first book I, I wrote this book called Hellbent, and I think I'd heard vaguely this is back in the mid nineties that there was this category called young adult, um, but then I I, I I assumed it was actual people in their 20s or early 30s like like, like I was I hadn't quite realized that it, that it was a synonym really for teenage books um so I, I wrote hellbent thinking it was for you know people who weren't just beyond the teenage years and I didn't particularly think about boys with that it's meant to be a, a general book for for anyone really um but it, it got sort of universally <laughs> rejected when I came to send it off. And I uh, some of the feedback said this should really be a, a teenage book. And so I slightly adapted it and changed it. And it did finally come out um, as, as a YA book, as a you know proper YA for, for teenagers. But somewhere in that, that process, I began to think more about the audience and began to think that, yes, it was really a book, both about a teenage boy and 
for teenage boys the kind of humor in it it's it's a very um kind of body <laughs> a body kind of humor in it I, I i thought probably would appeal more to boys and, and so then in my head from that point onwards i was a writer for teenage boys um but then also uh, you know you, you've done so many school visits i, I know as well but i, I kind of began to when i once i connected with my actual audience i realized that in fact probably most of my readers were teenage girls or, or in fact 12 year old girls <laughs> just yes, because yes, yes. <laughs> just because girls read so much more than boys so yes there would be a few boys reading my books but mainly it was those those girls that um you know in years seven eight nine ten who just read everything um so again i had to slightly recalibrate um so so this is a very kind of complicated answer to what was a fairly simple question so but i suppose yes somewhere in there i do have a kind of ideal reader and it probably is a version of me in those teenage years um it's, it's especially with my my kind of earlier ya books which is hellbent Henry Tumor, The Night That Killed Me, and Hello Darkness, uh, which are quite complex books. You, you know, they're they're um they're they're quite hard in in some ways. So they're aimed at yes. I suppose quite a high level of of teenage reader. Uh, although that did change eventually. Yes, well, that's the next thing that um, I wanted to come on to. Um, so let's leap into that, which is that you are the current holder of the Carnegie Medal. Well, can I just say, uh, I, I'm actually not the holder of any medal at all because um, oh, no. uh, because of the, the, the crisis. They, they weren't able to get it yeah. kind of engraved, so I still don't have it. I've never actually oh, held it in really my hands. Oh, sad. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Damn it. It, it, it. Okay, it well, kind of is. you are the current titular holder <laughs> of the Carnegie Medal, which is still a pretty good thing, yeah, even yeah. if you don't have the actual medal. Um, and it is for a book called Lark, which is one mm. of a series that you've written for Barrington Stoke, who are one of my favourite publishers, who I mm. begged to work for, but it never happened, which is a real shame. Oh, um, it will do, I'm sure, one day. <laughs> one day, maybe. I love them because they, um, they target their books at dyslexic readers, which I think is a very wonderful thing to do and mm. I understand that it's largely around the word count actually that the books are shorter um, and perhaps you can tell me a bit more about other things that are slightly different I know that yeah. the, the, uh, the paper quality is different and the typeface is, is different yeah. um, but the the quality of the stories is very much not different um, mm. that they are aimed at the age group that, that, that the book is kind of set for um, so I'd love you to tell me a bit a bit about Lark and and a bit about winning this amazing medal that we all want to win. Oh, blimey. Yes, of course. Um, well, firstly, just talking about Barrett and Stoke and the kind of books that they, that they publish. I think that they're, um, what they were battling against was the idea that if you've got reluctant readers, um, then um, the text that used to be aimed at them would, would perhaps be uh, maybe appropriate in terms of, of the difficulty of the language, but too young in terms of the age of the of the protagonists so Barrington yeah. Stoke tried to you know produce books that were accessible to people that don't normally read um, in terms of the you know the the um the, the, the style and so forth um, but um, but weren't not dumbed down but weren't aged down in terms of the content and the characters um, and, and so I think initially they were particularly aimed at um, young people with dyslexia, uh, but now it's been broadened out into still including dyslexic uh, children, but also just those kind of kids who don't read. And as part of that package, um, yeah, it's partly about about length, so the books are, are fairly short. The chapters are quite short, so that the readers get that, that kind of double hit. You know, it's very satisfying to finish a chapter. 
uh, and if the chapter's only two, three pages, they get that regular encouragement to, to kind of go on. And the same with actually finishing a book, that wonderful moment that we still have as adults of that moment of resonating uh, silence when you finally read the last word in the end. So it gives you those kind of benefits. Uh, and then that they do produce a really beautiful object. I think that that was partly aimed at making the kind of book that, again, was accessible to particularly dyslexic children. So um, the, the font is very easy to read. The paper is lovely and thick and creamy, so you don't get that bleed through from other pages, which, again, can be very mm. distracting for dyslexic young, young people. Um, and they're all they're just they're, they're, they're pretty lovely little works of art. So but I think yeah, it was a, a, a functional thing which led to this this um, this aesthetic quality that, that they have. So it's very satisfying when you when you hold it in your hands that that thick paper and the lovely text. Um, so yeah, they, they produce a very nice thing for those reluctant readers. Uh, and I, I the very first book I wrote for them was a book called The Fall, which is a very bleak little little parable um, that came out probably a good ten years ago now. Um, and I, I actually thought it was a bit too a bit too dour and depressing. Um, so although the um, Lark is, a, I call it the fourth of my trilogy about two brothers, um, although, again, it's set in a kind of grim world and there's lots of poverty and and desperation and, and bullying, uh, I, I did want to give that um, that kind of sense of, of moving from darkness into, into light with them, which I probably didn't do with The Fall. Um, so, yeah, the um, I, I suppose that the, the very first book I wrote in the series, a book called Brock, um, where I, I really wanted to focus on these two brothers living in these fairly desperate circumstances in a small town in Yorkshire. Their mother's left home. Um, their father can't cope. Uh, their mother left partly because the older of the two brothers has quite severe learning difficulties. That's Kenny. So he's got to be looked after basically by his younger brother, Nicky, who narrates the whole series. And, and their relationship is always at the, the heart of, of things. Um, but with and with each story, they kind of, they're, 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 they're home situation that the world slightly improves um but the start of the first one they're at the the absolute rock bottom um and in the first book brock they get uh, wrapped up in uh a, with, with a gang of, of youths are going out to the countryside badger baiting you know when you take dogs to to it's a blood sport where you kill badgers and the boys manage to save a baby badger and they take it home and they look after the badger and their dad manages to wrench himself out of his own slough of despond enough to help them with this. And so that begins a healing process in the family, which continues all the way through the series until Lark, the, the, the fourth, um, where the two boys have um, reestablished a kind of contact with their mother who'd been in Canada and had been trying to find them as well. And that she's about to come back to visit them. Um, and so they're kind of hyper about this and their dad suggests they go on a on a walk into the North Yorkshire Moors uh, to try and find larks um, just to take their mind off this, this impending huge event. Um, but it, it being a, an Anthony McGowan book, um, <laughs> it, it, it spirals down since. So it's it's meant to be maybe end of February, beginning of March when they go in the valley where they begin. It's just a bit drizzly and misly. But when they hit the high moors, it's it's much worse. They get caught in a blizzard, uh, and it becomes a kind of life and death situation, which um, not everyone survives. Um, but they're, they're with their little little um, Jack Russell Terrier Tina, who they actually rescued from the badger baiters back in the first book as well. So it's a kind of a, an adventure story, but also culminates. It's a, or completes the story of the relationship between Nikki and Kenny, um, and then the little little at the end which explains how the text ever got to be written uh, anyway that's a slightly confused ah, yes. jumbled account of the whole thing 
and this was the one obviously that that resonated with the um the Carnegie judges I mean I yeah. had I must say I had guessed it being a, an Anthony McGowan book that it wasn't going to be a bright sunny day on the auction horse <laughs> when they went out no um I mean like, there is something about about your writing as, as soon as you start reading it you think you sort of got your heart in your mouth thinking bad things are going to happen please can they come through okay. <laughs> and they uh, might not yeah I guess particularly with, with, with that quartet um I mean, with my some of my other books although they're, they're filled with a lot of I suppose darkness and, and bad things uh on the whole they tend to be comedies not, not the night yes. that kill me so much but they're so I'm, I'm trying to make young people laugh and and think and challenge them in all kinds of ways um and the the, the lark series is not the comedy isn't quite to the forefront of the way it is with the other books so there are a few laughs along the way um, but it is meant to be more that that real human drama i suppose that, that the way i thought about it was that my early books are trying quite hard to be clever uh, yeah. um and, and maybe there's a lot of showing off in them whereas with um with brock pike rook and lark what i was trying to be was i suppose true so giving it that that uh, that real sense of, of of lives really being lived in a real world and, and with real challenges and and did you find that that writing in a in a simpler way to a shorter word count than normal that 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 clarified your writing perhaps somehow well, oh yeah i mean i certainly think it made me write well better i suppose i, I cut yeah. out a lot of the excess a lot of the showing off the colossally elaborate and often rather filthy metaphors that populate my early books <laughs> to, to really focus on, on on what um what the story is about on those characters and their world um so yes cutting away a lot of those excrescences i think did make me a, a better writer Although I think I still in me got the got the urge to write filthy baroque comedies, but um, I don't know <laughs> uh, different different um, different strands in my authorial career. Well, yeah, I mean, you are the author of the Bare Bum series, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> the Einstein's Underpants. So it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not all Yorkshire Moors. No, um, but I, I I also noticed that that something else that 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 you do quite a lot is is foreground the lives of working class children, mm. um, and and I, I'm noticing that that conversation is happening more and more. That frankly, working class children, working class families are not represented mm. enough in children's literature, um, and you know hardly at all really in the in the golden age of children's literature. Mm. Apart from um, Family from One End Street, which is one of my absolute favourite series. Oh, I don't know up. that, but. Oh, it's wonderful. It's a sort of family of about, I don't know, eight or nine kids. I can't remember anymore. Um, oh. All kind of tumbling up together and, and their mother takes in ironing to um, to make ends meet. Hmm. And I remember there's a scene where the the elder daughter's desperately trying to help and she's ironing a, a silk dress for one of the clients and, and the iron gets left on the silk on the ironing board and <gasps> creates a, a mark. And it's, you know, one of those things of how, how will the family survive this because they can't yeah. possibly afford to replace yeah. it and yeah. heart and mouth stuff. Um, but, but, you know, but there isn't, there wasn't that much of that, you know. It's mostly kind no. of just William and you know, even Noel Stretfield's girls. They've they've got to make a living, but it's it's a very middle class kind of yeah. living. Um, and and now you know that there is the acknowledgement that that we should really be representing working class lives. Um, is that something that you consciously want to do? Oh, oh very much. Um, and I think that that partly it's um it's to do with the school that I went to. So um, that you, you know my, my own background is it's one of those ones that's really hard to to completely pin down. My my, my parents were nurses, 
Um, so obviously a kind of working class background, but also weirdly in between classes, being nurses. And then my my, my dad became a hospital manager. So gradually we, we kind of, the, the McGowan family moved from, I suppose, working to lower working to lower middle class. Um, and I think that whenever you're spanning those kind of boundaries, you become more alert, more aware of them. Um, you know, that, 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 that you're conscious of them in a way that perhaps if you're solidly placed in any class, you, you're not. Uh, but, yeah. also, but the school I went to was a very, very tough one in Leeds, Corpus Christi High School. It's uh, it's still uh, still still quite tough. Um, although it's a, now it's a very good school. Uh, it, it wasn't quite such a good school back when I was going there. Um, but that, you know, it's in the middle of this huge, sprawling council estate called the Holtonmore Estate on the outskirts of, of Leeds. Um, and it's a, you know, it was a pretty violent place back then. It's actually, it's the... Um, my, my first form teacher what's year seven now she's called um uh, miss connors uh she's she stayed at the same school all the way through her teaching career and uh in her early 60s when she was uh, just about to retire she became the only school teacher ever to be stabbed to death in an english <gasps> school uh as mrs oh mcguire she got but you know the same teacher been there all that time um, well, I was going to say that that shows you what kind of school it was, but in fact, it it, uh, it, it is no longer that kind of school. It was one, one disturbed kid who who did this terrible act. Um, whereas back in my day, it was a much more brutal sort of, sort of place. But because knives had become part of school culture in a way that they weren't when I was at school, you had that sudden possibility of of mortality. Uh, but, but yes, so it yeah. was a it was a tough, rough old school in a tough, rough old estate, and all of my friends were were from the local estate, and so when I came to write um, you know for teenagers in my head that was where I, I was again back in that school um, with the you know normal working class kids so it, it almost wasn't initially a deliberate decision that was just the world I was describing um, but then I you know the, the more I considered it, the more it, it was obvious that in fact working class kids were underrepresented um, in, in, in literature um, and so though it wasn't um, I suppose a um, a campaigning kind of issue with me uh, yeah. it was just that that was the world I was describing but but also I suppose one of the things that I was trying to get across was that uh, and I've done this a bit in my other fiction as well my adult fiction but was that uh, um, ordinary lives are filled with drama and danger and tension and excitement <laughs> Uh, and if you just kind of focus on them you can find the stories in there you, you don't have to go to South America or or, uh, or 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 wherever, or the, the Antarctic to find an adventure. That they're, they're all around us. They're everywhere. Yes, yeah. You, you make me think of um of Ruth Ware, who's been on this podcast too. Um, who writes thrillers, but but very much uh -huh. with very ordinary heroines who yeah. absolutely don't want to lead a special life. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then these these things happen to them, and then it becomes merely a matter of survival. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, there there is a lot to be found in the ordinary. Well, I suppose um, in particular, in in our school days, I think this is perhaps why I, I'll probably never totally shake off writing for for, for young people, for teenagers. That yeah. you know, at, at school, um, unlike adult life, there are people around you who hate you, who want to harm you. Uh, yeah. You know that there are intense friendships, intense feelings of love and loathing, and this genuine fear and genuine genuine jeopardy. Um, yeah. in a way that, that perhaps in our adult lives we, we don't get that so much you know I don't think anyone hates the adult Anthony McGowan <laughs> um, <laughs> you know I may bore people or annoy some but no one hates me but the the young Anthony McGowan I was hated by kids at school and I hated them back so you know to me it seems almost mad to write about anything else apart from those teenage lives 
Yes, I mean, I must say, one of the things that drew me to writing for that age group um, was that it was the most intense time of my life growing up. Mm. And it's when I made all sorts of decisions about what kind of person I wanted to be, partly mm. based on my reading and partly based on my experiences. And <laughs> yeah, I wanted to write for people who are going through that level of intensity. Uh, and I have well. to ask you, are you that person? Did, did, it, did it come true, your attempt to create <laughs> yourself? I think it did. Yes, I mean, I certainly oh, wow. my 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 politics, my understanding of world order, and all of that kind of thing came came through from those books. So, yeah, no, it didn't really shift after that. Uh, yeah, if I hadn't learned it by the time I was fourteen, it was a bit late, really. Um, so so yeah, and I do think it's a privilege to write for that age group. I mean, like you, um, I I thought that I was writing with people in their mid-teens and yet my core reader was probably 12 or maybe 11, yeah. sometimes nine, because <laughs> um, kids read up in ways that um, I, I still find quite difficult to get my head around sometimes. Do, um, do you think that, that uh, what, what are any of your, um, your younger readers, do you think they'll, they'll read your, um, your queen detective fiction as well because it's a, it's a book by, by you? Will you draw them up with I, you, do you I, I bet you do. Do I imagine that they they probably would? They might be slightly startled by the autoerotic <laughs> asphyxiation element. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> um, I did. I did change my name slightly, obviously. So I went from Sophia to S J. But that oh. wasn't oh, right, to yes. put off readers, but it was to avoid confusion with the publishing world more. Because I would say, you know, I'm writing this book. My heroine is turning mm. ninety, um, and it's all about <laughs> autoerotic asphyxiation, and people would. Honestly, over and over, look me in the eye and say, and what age group is it for? <laughs> oh, it's for 12-year-olds. No, it's not. Um, so, yeah, I had to make that quite clear. <laughs> I was moving on. Um, but, yeah, I, I want to come back to, to Lark just, just, just for a little bit. Um, I'm interested in, in this idea of of children's literature sort of as it is presented to people. You know, there's such a wide mm. range of it. Um and a good starting point, if if you're trying to you know understand what it's like, if you're a school librarian or something, is is the Carnegie Medal, is the books that are mm. submitted to it, and the Kate Greenaway Prize. Mm. Um, and how did you find that process of being involved with it? Do do you think that it is a useful because it is the most prestigious prize in um, in children's literature? Do you think mm. it's it's serving a useful function? Oh, blimey, it's, it's a really good question, a hard one to give a succinct answer to. I mean, the um, the third book in the series, Rook, was shortlisted for it. Uh, and I genuinely found the shortlisting process perhaps the, the best thing about the whole thing. Because w- when you get shortlisted, so that um, for, for your listeners, uh, the, the process is, is quite drawn out. So initially there's a nomination stage. And I think all that in, means is that at least one librarian who's a member of SILIP will nominate your book. Um, then that gets, um, and so there's maybe a couple of hundred books get nominated, and then that's initially whittled down to the long list, which I think oh, I can't remember how many on the long list now. It might, it's kind of fifty plus, so it's a, a long, yeah. long list, um, and then that gets debated um, by groups of librarians and and further whittled down to the shortlisting stage, which I think is is um, is the really good bit because once you get shortlisted, then um, I mean quite literally hundreds of book clubs in schools and libraries around the country uh, read and debate your 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 story your book um so uh, you suddenly part this huge community of impassioned young readers and that's genuinely Mm. brilliant um you know i I visited quite a few of these groups and talked about the books and and you know these are the these literally sophia are there are 
our ideal readers. You know, they're really kind of keen, uh, li- I was going to say library nerds, but I love the library nerds. Nerds is such a horrible yeah. word. That, that, you know, that, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, um, and so that was totally joyous. I think it does kind of g- generate its own energy as well. It becomes, you know, the people who are reading these books are excited about it and they care who wins. They want their favourite one to win. Um, so it's almost a, an ideal world for for writers to be in and i'm almost sorry for the adult world that don't have this this um this 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 same the same intense readership um so that that's all i think genuinely brilliant and then you, you know I, I never thought rook would win and it didn't i kind of assumed actually that angie thomas would, would win that year but it was um a Ger- geraldine mccorkran wasn't it um so oh yes yes so um a- angie thomas who had done um a lot of men can't think of the name um the the black lives the hate, matter book yes um, um the hate you give thug the hate you give yes yes which yeah a truly truly extraordinary work of art b- b- brilliant book and also i i um because you, you don't you're not told in advance that you haven't won it although you you generally i think the winner is 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 told in advance so but i, I kind of went on the day more or less knowing that i hadn't won and then i saw angie get out of a taxi and she'd come over from america and i thought okay <laughs> that, that that now absolutely <laughs> guarantees because you know why would she come all this way not not to have won yeah. it but it, it wasn't her um so yeah i think the but the so the winning it is of course glorious and then you get the medal if you're lucky and then forever you are carnegie winner but i genuinely think it's that stage before it which is the really beautiful part that shortlisting and that intense group of readers reading your work and discussing it yeah, it's a lot less stressful. Of course, you've been both sides of it now. You've been been, been a winner and not a winner. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I won it in that very strange year. So I, I don't know, almost feel like I still haven't quite quite won it, especially not having the, the, the medal. That's not, I keep complaining about not having the medal. The medal's not important. <laughs> it's I've got the virtual medal. Um, yeah, but I, but you, I, I suppose you didn't get to get out of a taxi and all of that stuff. I exactly, and I had a speech yeah. all planned. I had my um, oh. my, my my it was my revenge speech. All the people who've annoyed me over the years, I was going to publicly humiliate yes. them in the speech. One of those, <laughs> not really. We've been denied uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know. If behind your question, you you were um, thinking about the kind of books which tend to win the Carnegie. I don't know mm. which, which uh, I think that it's often well sometimes criticised in in our world as being the kind of books that librarians kind of like. So more the, the kind of serious stuff. It's very rare that a funny book ever wins the, the Carnegie. Yes. Uh, and uh, and also because although in theory it's it's um I suppose it's for, for mid grade up. Uh, there's the Kate Greenaway, which is for picture books, illustrated books. And so that's usually for younger books. And then the um, the Carnegie is for them for the slightly older. But it, uh, over the past few years, it's been kind of dominated by the higher end of that, by YA. So it tends yeah. to be serious YA at the higher end of the kind that librarians themselves love. And, you know, I think that's, that's not an, a totally unfair um, criticism, uh, even though it turns out that I've... Uh, I was um, a beneficiary of that, of that. Um, but I, I, you know, I'll talk about perhaps splitting the Carnegie itself into you know YA and then mid grade, which you know doesn't seem like a stupid idea to me. But then it's become more, more, more complicated having more than one Carnegie winner. I, I, I'm not sure what the what the answer to that is. Although t- to defend the whole process again, um, you know, when you look at the people who've won the Carnegie, these are amazing writers, and I, yeah. I, and these are on the whole people. And books, rather, rather than the authors, who, which have survived and are still read, and I, I do feel immensely proud to to be on that list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I do feel 
ambivalent about it. I I like the fact that it's there very much. I loved the, what you were describing about it, the fact that it gets young people who are passionate about books to do a lot of reading and and celebrate that passion. I think that's a really wonderful way that it's run. But but yes, it's it tends not to favor books that people read just for their own personal pleasure. Um I think this is a book that you absolutely love, <laughs> that you told all your friends to read, that you all enjoyed, yeah, but yeah. That, it, that has not marked you as a person in the way that a Carnegie winner probably does. Yeah. Um, I suppose I that the, there are the, the, the Costa book prize tends to be a bit like that. And perhaps is the Waterstones got a children's element? So I suppose that there are other more, more populist um, prizes as well. Um, yeah, I want more, I was at, <laughs> more uh, opportunities yeah, but, to win prizes. Well, maybe, you know, know, again, I've got quite a lot of adult writer friends as as you do as well. But it's, uh, you know, we are blessed, and there are quite a few prizes. And I mean, maybe over the past year or two, some have, 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 um, have withered away a bit in the horrible climate. But there's all those regional children's book prizes as well, uh, run that by l- local true. library service, which I used to. I would I would never not go if shortlisted for any of those prizes. Yes. You know, I used to go quite often to. Uh, the Catalyst Prize in Scotland and the Blackpool Prize and the Lancashire Prize and that they were always totally joyous uh, 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 um, uh, 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 times with you know a, a town hall full of 500 screaming kids I, I used to love yeah. those and, and there's nothing like <laughs> that in the is... adult book world no I mean I think as, as children's writers we are really blessed that way in yeah. so many ways we we get to interact with our readership in yeah. ways that adult writers don't there's the odd library thing and there, there are festivals but yeah they yeah. don't get nearly the kind of school visit <laughs> prize thing that, that, that we've been, been lucky enough to sort of be involved mm. with although you more than me actually I have to say um, but I mean I think this is perhaps a chance to um, to celebrate all those school librarians who make it happen and who are just so utterly dedicated those yeah. who are still lucky enough to, to be uh, in work doing that amazing job oh they're, they're wonderful aren't they yeah I always um you know, I've done school visits with a school librarian running it, which always go really well. And occasionally you go to a school that doesn't have a school librarian. And that's nearly always a, was a bit of a fiasco when there's not an actual, you know, the person whose job it is to make those things work. So but I think it's yeah. an absolutely key role in the school. <laughs> and also, true. you know, talking to the librarians and the and the young people in the libraries, that school librarian role is so important because it's kind of intermediary between the the the, the pupils and the and the teachers. So, you know, they're often a kind of almost a friend to the to the, um, the people that hang out in the libraries. And those libraries are a safe space for the the kids that might not feel totally safe out, out, outside them. So I know there's a big move at the moment supporting um, school libraries, and I, I'm so fully behind that. Yes, Cressida Cowell is is sort of yeah. leading that, isn't she? As, yeah. as the current children's laureate, and I'm so glad. I I remember going to a, a school librarian prize giving, which was to celebrate the school librarians and um, the the young people who who do the job. And then there were a bunch of authors there, and we were all a bit tearful actually because we just got talking about what school libraries had meant to us growing up, and it's exactly what you said. It was a safe space. And we'd all needed it and we'd all found it and it had profoundly changed all of us. And we were all very worried that they were disappearing for, for other people. Um, it was it was really interesting just to see how much all of us had been kind of touched by that. Did, so you had that at your, your very well, difficult uh, sounding school, did you? You know, I, I didn't. No, not in the school. There wasn't a school librarian. There was barely mm. a school library at, at Corpus Christi back in those days. Uh, my version of that was um, a rather brilliant little small uh, local library in the village where, where I was growing up in Sherburne in Elmet, right. uh, which is actually quite important in the um, in the Brock, Pike, Rook and Lark series. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a refuge there. So my version of your school library was my local library. Yeah. 
um, which I, I, I adored as a place. I used to hang out all the time there. Yeah, interesting that it can be as much of a sort of a physical refuge as a, a sort of a mental one for finding books. Yeah, especially because, you know, my, my household, it was a, it was a, a loving household, um, but it was very, um, very high energy. There were always frantic arguments and screaming bouts of five McGowan kids in, in, in this house. My, my parents, you know, they're all, all quite big personalities. So the school, so the, the local library was very much a, a refuge in, in that sense, a literal refuge that I could just, you know, find some, some peace and quiet to read in. My, my parents were both readers, but there just weren't many books in, in our house. You know, we had, yeah. um, uh, there was a set of Dickens that, my, that we'd inherited from somewhere or other and, a, and a, an encyclopedia that was quite important in my mental development uh, but it just wasn't the kind of household f- packed full of children's books so again just literally my only way of accessing literature was through the local library um you're talking earlier about you know my my ideal reader and of course you know in many ways it, it is that that keen fantastic lovely library nerd who who does keep us in business but actually my ideal ideal reader is is somebody who doesn't read and who mm. um who just picks up a book and and it's the book they mm. think that there will never be a book that will tempt them, but this is the one. Mm. And, you know, maybe sometimes it's one that I've written. And and they read it to the end and they think, oh, wow, I could, I could do that again, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful moment. Actually, uh, I remember... <sighs> I was going to say, I, I was, there was one, one fant- my favourite school library that, that I was in as part of a, a visit where they said, I'm terribly sorry, Miss Bennett, but please could you eat your sandwiches somewhere else? Because um, <laughs> this is the bit where um, where the boys come in. And I mean, girls could too, but it was, it was very specifically for, for, for the boys. And, and this group, I, mean, I said, of course, I will eat my sandwiches somewhere else. <laughs> um, and yeah, this, this group of year sevens just stormed in, pulled out the bean bags, went to the comic section, pulled out the comics, made mm-hmm. themselves comfortable, that's how they spent their lunch break and I that librarian is just a total hero to me um so but I so I'm interested in whatever gets kids reading and if it's the Beano then that's fantastic I'm happy and it's but it's something you've done haven't you with your project x series for example you 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 are writing for sort of younger readers as well and I'm interested in in how you go about that Oh, blimey. Well, the project was, was quite unusual. It wasn't like the kind of books that we normally write. It was part of a reading tree series from the, the OUP. Mm. Um, and there it was actually, it was the least free I've ever been as a, as a writer because, uh, you know, all the characters were given to us, um, even that the world was given to us, um, the, the broad plot outlines were given to us. So that actually was a rather joyless mechanical process, <laughs> writing writing those, um, those Project X series. You, you know, as we're, we're both professional writers, you do the best job you possibly can. Um, yeah. But that, that bit wasn't so much fun. I, I much more enjoyed the, um, you mentioned them before, the Bear Bum Gang series. Yeah. Uh, which are aimed at, I suppose, seven to nine-year-olds, although you get younger kids reading them and a few older ones there. Well, I, I really did kind of kind of let rip there. Um, uh, you, you know, partly channeling my memories of being a child, partly talking to my own kids about their experiences. And I just tried to make those as funny and silly as I possibly could. So that was one of, that was one of my, my most enjoyable writing experiences compared to the, the I suppose, the straitjacket of the Project X series. But, you, you know, right. that they're, because they're actually part of a, of a, of a programme teaching young people to read, they've got a particular goal. And I suppose my yeah. job was to, as well as those those practical goals of, of helping the young people to understand phonics and that the whole process of, of grappling with, with with words and concepts. I also tried to then make them exciting, um, but it was oh, it's quite a hard, stressful world. Oh, the, the one thing I'd say that though is that um, uh, because <laughs> because they go into a lot of schools, it's um, it's not quite a pension. 
Um, but uh, I, I, uh, it's one of the few times when I enjoy reading the royalty checks because they, you know, they, they still sell. That's always quite yeah, no, I can though. imagine that. <laughs> Many school libraries that need to be filled. Um, I'm interested to know, so what your writing process is, does it vary from book to book? Uh, y- yes. Um, I suppose that... W- Again, thinking of back to back to the beginning, most of my books began with um, a little idea um, that, that you could just put in a in a sentence. Really, so my, my very first one, Hellbent, it was a teenage boy dies and goes to hell. That was the original idea, and then then if that that little kernel, that seed, is 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 good enough, is fertile enough, then packed in inside that is everything you need: the character and the world and, and the plot. So the second one, Henry Tumor, it's about a boy with a talking brain tumor. But the original thought there was one person, two voices inside one head. And I wasn't yeah. even sure what, what that was going to be, be about there. So, and then to, it does feel like unpacking what's contained in a concentrated form in that original idea. Um, so that that's one way of working. Um, with, with, um, with the Brock, Pike, um, Rook, Lark sequence, there it absolutely began with that relationship between the two brothers. Um, Why I wanted the... The original thought was that the younger brother is a carer for the older brother and i wasn't initially sure about what their world was why he was the carer but i was wait yes i suppose i did want to put it in in this small town big village where i grew up because most of my other books are set in in a city which in my head is i suppose leeds it's not often explicitly stated that and then more recently london but that is a small town book or series and also what i liked about that was that um it's a real place shed in Elmet. You could you could recreate it from from the books. You know the, the the three pubs and the church on the hill and the and the spa. Um, but w- what's what's great for me, but that was growing up and also for the boys being there, was that you have this um, cheek by jowl, a kind of semi-urban world, and also the countryside. You only have a short yeah. walk or a bike ride away from actual nature, and nature is a big big part of the, of the, of the series. Um, so, so yes, it's a very again a very complicated waffly answer to, to your, your question. So, um, occasionally, what comes to me is an idea, which I then just work through. With those books, it was a relationship, but then also that relationship planted in that small town world, um, and then the plots emerge for, for, from from that. Um, uh, other times, um, I, I, I mean, I've written to. Um, I've written to order in a sense that the Project X books I was doing what I was told uh, but then also I read this series of um, continuing the Willard Price book so um, my, my adventure books are four of those about two teenagers who are part of an organization that and they travel the world saving animals so again I was commissioned to, to, to write those um, and it did the best I, could. I had a lot more freedom than the Project X but still it was broadly speaking I was given the characters and the organization and then it was up to me um, I mean, so, one thing I have noticed with all of this is that you've been writing a bit longer than me. I mean, I think a few years, not not massively, but you have written about four times as many books as I have. <laughs> so I'm curious to know how you managed to do this. So I, and I've I mean, gone true, through a quantity, not quality. <laughs> well, but, I mean, it, it's really interesting. I, I, you know, even a short book would take me a very long time. So I'm interested to know how you just managed to, you know, start, finish, move on to the next thing. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, I, th- I think I counted them up, and it's like fifty-one now. But a lot of them are oh, quite short. Um, I-, I think I've written about maybe twenty full-length books. Um, well, I think that with with, with me, my um, I tend to do a lot of thinking before I write anything down. I- I'm not, but yeah. not a plotter in that sense. I don't do any notes, but I I, I gestate the idea, and then when mm. it finally comes, it 
bursts out of me. So the I have a long gestation and a very short and violent birth. <laughs> so yeah. um, you know I hammer away at my keyboard and, and it, it all, all kind of comes out. And also what what I found is I think because of that that gestational period that what comes out in the first draft is pretty much it. So I don't really? have to do much much redrafting, which again you know compresses it. Um, and you know, I suppose it just, I, I've got better at it over, over the years. And so usually my first draft is pretty close to what finally gets published. Um, and are you editing as you go along or not really much? Uh, a, a little bit. Um, but it's, I don't know about, about about you, but it's almost not a conscious process. It's almost like your fingers are doing the, the thinking that, you know, you yeah. just... on a good day, it's, it's like that it's as if, Yeah, because the hands n- know what to do. Um, yeah. But so... Um, so the question is, how have I written so much? But but also, um, there is that thing that if you, you know, I try and write a thousand words a day. Uh, and right. sometimes I'll have good days and write two or three thousand. Some days, you know, 500. Some days, nothing. We've all had those days. But if you write a yeah. thousand words a day, that's 365,000 words a year. Yeah, <laughs> and let's say you take a hundred. Let's say you take a hundred days off. That's you know that's that's pretty much war and peace every year. So if so, obviously nobody actually writes that that that, that much. But it's not that hard to write. You know quantities of, of prose. You know, clearly you have um uh, your 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 quality control is a lot better than mine. <laughs> so maybe that's your your kind of main filter. But uh, I don't know. I um, do a lot of rewriting. I have to say, and I always think I'm not going to. With every sentence I write, I try and write it as perfectly as possible, and I assume that this is how it's going to be. But <laughs> then, I mean, the, the book that I've just finished uh, has three and a half thousand changes so far. Oh, so um, yeah, according to word track changes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it wasn't perfect when I when I got to the end. Yeah. Um, do you do you have writing gurus in mind, writing heroes when you're when you're sort of thinking about the process? Do you mean other writers who who have inspired or means yeah, some the, way well, or... the sort of Stephen King's, John York's, or or yes, or writers whose own writing you have in the back of your mind? You know, no. I mean, I, I teach a bit of creative writing, and so. You know, I've read a lot of those books now to get ideas for then doing doing seminars. Um, but when you know when I started out writing, I hadn't read any any of those kind of creative writing guides. Um, I, I'm not at all dissing them. It just was never part of my own intellectual development. Mm. Um, but w- with me, it's much more a case of of um, of being inspired by by other writers and often emulating them. You know, trying to be like them. You know, I, yeah. I do think there's a role for mimicry in that apprenticeship years that you serve. I mean, I, I, I was, one of my favourite writers for a long time was Anthony Burgess, and I tried very hard to be like Anthony Burgess in that kind of word drunk way that he has. So a lot of my early books, you can see there's there's a lot of there's a lot of language in inverted commas in there. Um, so he, he was a kind of big influence. Um, but going back before that, I don't think I would have been a writer or possibly even a reader to the same extent if when I was at junior school a, a teacher hadn't given me the Lord of the Rings. And so yes. I, I think I think I was nine, and up to that point, I hadn't really read any fiction at all. Uh, I was I've read quite a lot, but it was all fat stuff. I was obsessed with war and nature, so that's you know my my reading was was the Guinness Book of Animal Facts and Feats, which I still have in my study here, um, 
and endless books about fighter aircraft of World War Two. And then kind of out of the blue, my, my teacher, she's called Miss Marnie, gave me the, the, the Lord of the Rings, the first volume, the, the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, I hadn't even read The Hobbit at that stage, and I did, didn't really know what this thing was. Um, I didn't know how to read a novel. It's a, it's a quite challenging for a nine-year-old. And I think it took, it took me at least two years to read that, that first volume, I'm learning what a novel was as, as I read it. Um, but then I accelerated the way you do. And I think between the age then of, of you know, 11 and 15, all I read was The Lord of the Rings over and over again. I literally <laughs> go back to the beginning when I... And, but by the end of that process, I was a completely different person. I was the kind of person that, that read books and might one day write them. Um, you yes. know, just the idea of creating and then entering a fictional world suddenly uh, struck me as being an amazing thing to do. So, yeah, I mean, Tolkien was a really important part of that, that intellectual development and then all the other writers that I, I, I adored. But I, I remember when I um, I started writing Hellbent and I wasn't quite sure what my style was. Uh, well, well, I, I had the, the the worst kind of civil service job working for the um, HM Customs and Excise in VAT headquarters. And it was really hard and really boring. Uh, and so because it was such a, a terrible day job, I, I lived in my imagination. So reading was massively important to me there. And I, I used to read, work my way through the my shelf of Penguin Classics on my way into work. Um, yeah. But I finally got to a book called um, Gargantua and Pantagruel by Rabelais, um, which is this, you know, written in the um, early 1500s, I think. Uh, obviously, it's in French. The original is an f- amazing translation by Thomas Urquhart. But it's this it's colossally complicated, filthy, philosophical fun but and it's this combination of, 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 of complex ideas and utterly gross bodily comedy. And I suddenly thought, yes, that's my thing. I'm going to write, write <laughs> Rabelais. I mean, it's, it's a famous that's scene awesome. in, in Rabelais where um, one of the main characters uh, tries to find the, the softest thing to wipe his bottom on. It's, I think it was on QI a few years ago, so now it's, it's more widely known. Um, and yeah. there's this like five-page list of the things he, do, he does, various items of clothing and various animals, before finally hitting on the um, on the soft and downy neck of a goose as a perfect <laughs> thing to wipe your bum on. Uh, and good, so, uh, uh, yeah, well, a bit a bit high risk given that you know geese can snap. Um, and it's it, living it, and, goose, yeah. yeah well, uh, well, I suppose at the beginning of the process, it's alive, yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, and in, in, in Hellbent, then I've got a, a scene where I do a kind of dark mimicking of that. So my main character's in hell. It's it's like five pages, the worst things to have to wipe your bottom on. But so, yes, yeah, so that was a case of, of me reading an author and thinking, yes, I want to be like that. So yes. that was my kind of intellectual development, rather than reading the kind of writing gurus that the, 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 the Yorks and the. I mean, I did, actually, I did read Stephen King's book, uh, which I thought was was brilliant. Uh, his on writing, although I actually preferred the little memoir bit at the beginning rather than the writing guide. Because interesting, I'm reading a memoir bit at the moment and very uh, much loving it. So oh, it's I've gripping, got the writing guide it? to come. Yeah. Well, well the, the, I, I love writers writing about writing, particularly if there's somebody <laughs> like him who is just very, very good at telling stories. Yeah. And I love how monogamous and in love with his wife he is and just yeah. honest about yeah. that. And he's, yeah, not, he's yeah. not trying to be cool. And I think to me, yeah. that just makes him very cool indeed. But the, the old thing is that you know, there are these apparent rules, but um, then almost every great book breaks them. So, yeah. you know, I think oh, it, yeah. it can be useful to a writer to, to know about these rules and think about them and and wonder if they're useful or not. Is it a ladder you can climb and then cast away? Should you, in fact, you know, is, is being a, a, a real writer always a matter of breaking those rules? Uh, but so I think it can be a good thing to think about them, but just not be limited by them. There's a, there's a quote by, I think, Somerset Maugham, that there are, um, there are three rules for writing. 
but nobody knows what they are or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I like that. Oh, that could be the theme of this podcast, really. No, that's awesome. Um, do you have any tips for listeners? For for the your listeners who are writers? Yes. Um, well, um, you know, I, I bet every single writer that you ask this question to says, first of all, be a reader. Uh, you know, for yeah. me, writing was a continuation of, of reading, really. You know, I was in that world of, of literature. And I, I don't know a single writer that isn't, first of all, an obsessive, manic reader. Um, I, I suppose that, um, you know, for a long time, my, my notebooks are very important to me. Every idea I had, I'd write down in my notebooks because uh, I think I've got a reasonably fertile mind. That sounds really big-headed, doesn't it? But, you know, I have a lot of ideas, whether it'll comic scenes or jokes or characters. Uh, but I've also got um, a mind like a sieve. Um, so just everything falls. That's not really sieve, is it? Yeah. If everything falls through it. It's like a broken sieve. Uh, nothing stays in my head. So unless I write it down, then it, it, it's gone forever. I suppose actually over recent years, um, Facebook has taken over as my writer's notebook. So I tend to use right. Facebook as a as a, a place to put down ideas I have. So little comic scenes or jokes tend to go on there. And then also you, you, you have that instant feedback. Either people laugh or do the shocked face emoji or they <laughs> or they ignore it so it's quite maybe that's a tip I would, I would give to writers that that um you know put down your ideas your little comic scenes whatever as, as facebook posts and get instant feedback on it instant free feedback um <laughs> interesting I, okay i haven't had that piece of feedback uh, of um that tip before so yeah I, it, great it, it kind of works for me but uh, you know in terms of I suppose that yeah, for for younger writers, I I'm, I'm suppose I'm I'm guessing that most of the listeners to your podcast will be adults. But for younger writers, I think it's quite important to try and work in shorter forms. Maybe this this also applies to early yeah. stage writers. Yeah. So so you have that satisfaction of completing it, whether it's a poem or a short story or something. That you know, lots of, of really brilliant writers have these huge ideas for epic fantasy trilogies, and and they just never get get to finish them. And you know, no one ever published half a book, or oh, but uh, but a poem you can write in a day, and that always that then that perfects your writing skills. So I think yeah. small scale and perfect w when you're starting out, build up that 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 um, that bank of skills that you need, that ability to find the right word, the right phrase. Um, oh, blimey. No, is that, is that, that's useful. <laughs> that's perfect. Thank you so much. Well, we're we're at the end of uh, my list of questions, um, and it's been lovely talking to you. Thank you, um, and uh, yes, thanks for inhabiting the the Vogue lined bedroom to do this. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm aware of the fact that um that I kind of. Uh, I'm a terrible thinker on my on my feet person, so I tend to waffle on and then find little kind of curly cues and and clouds of, of amorphous stuff, and then then maybe come come back to the the answer. I'm doing it now, aren't I? <laughs> it's been lovely to listen to you, Tony. Honestly. <laughs> well, it was a, it was a pleasure chatting to you, Sophia. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Prepublished. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Prepub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.